This is Our American Stories, and it's time now for our American Dreamers series. And today, you're in for a treat. A celebration of the life of Tim Duncan. And if you're not a sports fan or a basketball friend, you're saying, Tim who? Because he wasn't Michael Jordan. Everybody knew Mike. He's a very different guy. This is a celebration of the life of a man who won five NBA championships, and all with the same team, the San Antonio Spurs, a team he was with for his entire professional career from the day he was the number one draft pick out of Wake Forest in 1997 to his retirement in July of 2016. My goodness, that just never happens anymore. With Duncan at the helm, the Spurs won 71% of their games, the best 19-year stretch in NBA history, and better than any team in any North American team sport, too. And the Spurs never once had a losing record during his career, and never once, and this is extraordinary, never once missed the playoffs. Upon his retirement, CBS Ken Berger wrote this, Tim Duncan leaves in his wake an unprecedented era of team success that in some ways detracted from his own individual greatness. They'll never talk about points, rebounds, or dunks when it comes to the big fundamental. They'll talk about winning. They'll talk about championships. And there can be no greater testament to excellence. Here's just a little bit of Tim Duncan's personal excellence that was obscured by his greater excellence. He averaged 19 points and almost 11 rebounds a game over 19 years. He was a two-time NBA MVP, three-time NBA Finals MVP, and NBA Rookie of the Year, and I could go on and on and on. And get this, basketball wasn't even his first sport. If it wasn't for Hurricane Hugo destroying his family's Olympic-sized pool at his childhood home of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, we might all know Tim Duncan as an Olympic swimmer. It was only then that he found basketball because he needed a new sport. That's crazy. When he finally retired after 19 seasons, he did so in perfect Tim Duncan style. He said nothing. He had the San Antonio Spurs put out a press release, and he didn't even have a quote. The only interview he eventually did was with a childhood friend on an internet radio program. This is so cool. He left behind a legacy of being one of the greatest NBA players of all time, but perhaps his greatest legacy that makes him a true standout in this fame-maniac culture is his unassuming humility. It was never about Tim Duncan. His life's work had spoken for itself, being a part of a great team. Oh my goodness, be still my heart. On December 18th, 2016, the San Antonio Spurs held a ceremony to retire his jersey. And I'm sure Tim didn't want to be there. You could tell he didn't want to be there if you watched the video. You could see him squirming about the fact that he had to sit there while other people showered him with praise. But he had to be there. They wanted to celebrate him. A sold-out crowd of over 18,000 fans. And we're going to bring you highlights from this extraordinary occasion, starting with his teammate, Tony Parker. Because Timmy will play the game so easy. Like, you'll have, like, I, mean, I talked to Mano, I was like, Timmy was not that good tonight. And he had, like, 30 points and 20 rebounds. And I was like, that was a quiet 30 and 20. I was like, that's the only guy that can do that. 
that many times, every night I look at the stat sheet. My first two years in the league, he won MVP two years in a row, my first two years. And every night I look and I'm like, wow, 40 and 26, I didn't even see it. Like, that's crazy to do that. That's very hard because he's so unselfish. And everybody keeps saying that he's unselfish because he makes everybody around him better. And that's the true definition of a superstar. And next up was another teammate, Manu Ginobili. I just want to t- uh, talk about um, how, how tough of a competitor he was. Many of the games uh, in which he struggled, struggled for his standards, which was probably at 26 and 10, uh, he was very upset because maybe he missed a big shot, maybe he was not as sharp as he wanted to. And so many times he came to the hall and said, that's on me, guys. That's, this is my loss. It was my bad. I wasn't ready. And we knew that we look at, it, at each other and say, oh, my, tomorrow he's going to be there very early. <laughs> he's going to be very early there. So he would, next morning, he would get his headphones, get into the gun, the, you know, the rebounding and passing machine, and shoot there for hours, you know, right-handed hook, free throw, banker up fake, dribble, shoot, and you go there early to do treatments because you were tired and the guy was there shooting and, and showing everybody else how, how it's done. And Ginobili continued with a story he'd never shared before with anyone. It was 2006, playoffs in Sacramento. Uh, we were up to one, uh, and Pop designed a play. I had to, to, to finish the game. We were tied. I not only messed that play up, I turn it over, but they run on transition, they scored, and they, we lost. It was 2-2, uh, and I was devastated. I was truly embarrassed to, to have turned the ball over like that, and it really hurt me. I wanted to vanish. I wanted to dig a hole in the floor and just hide there forever. Uh, so I went to my room, I hid there. I didn't want to talk to anybody, so I turned the phone off, and... Uh, hotel room started to ring. I said, I don't want to talk to anybody, so I ignored it. Started to ring again, so I pick it up and hang it. Third time, I hang it again. Fourth time, I unplugged it. I said, yeah, come find me now. But then, there was another one in the bathroom. By the, by the fifth time, I go pick it up, I say, what? And it was, Nanu. That's the way he called me, Nanu. Uh, he goes, what's up, buddy? What, CD? I don't want to talk to anybody. You know what happened. Come on, come with me, come with me. And he started insisting, 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 and you don't say no to TD. So he said it. And he invited me to dinner. We talked for hours. We talked about computers, cars, TV shows, whatever. The whole night shift, my mental state shifted. And, you know, I had a, a way better night than could have been otherwise. Those are the type of gestures that I'm pretty sure you can go and ask most of his teammates around, and they all saw it. And that's leadership, folks. Tim Duncan was celebrating his retirement here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating the life of Tim Duncan because the city of San Antonio celebrated it recently, and it's a life worth celebrating. Tim Duncan, a big star who didn't act like a star and didn't bring attention on himself because he was too busy winning championships and too busy doing things like you just heard, trying to bring his boy Manu Ginobili back to life by going out and forgetting about the mistake because everybody makes mistakes. And, and Timmy Duncan knew that nobody beats himself up harder than Manu Ginobili. You don't need to go in and yell at Manu. You need to go out and have him play a video game or have a drink. And now, and ultimately, well, Tim Duncan did have to get up and talk. And before that, though, coach had to. And there was only one coach, and it was Greg Popovich, Pop. But when Popovich gets the microphone, he immediately hands it over to David Odom, who was Tim Duncan's college coach at Wake Forest. Out of respect for Dave, out of respect for embracing and grooming this unlikely basketball player from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Here's Dave. As I walked up here, I was reminded that myself and two of Tim's college teammates are sitting up here someplace. We're probably the only three people in this building tonight that have seen something that Tim Duncan's done that not a single person, including the coaching staff here at, uh, in the Spurs, have done. Tim's first game at Wake Forest was something like zero points, three rebounds, and one block. He said seven rebounds. I'm not going to argue with him. But the story is we lost to a Division II team from Alaska where they don't even play basketball. And I said to him after it was over, Timmy, what gives? He said, Coach, I'm leaving a lot of room for growth. (laughs) And he did. 22 years ago, I received a phone call in my office at Wake Forest. And this 6'9", 185, 190-pound islander from the Virgin Islands called and said, I want to come to Wake Forest. I want to study. I want to get my degree, which he did in four years. And I want to learn the game of basketball, and I want to play it for a career, which he's done. And by the way, he didn't just get a degree. He was also a research assistant and co-authored a book on egotism. Go figure. And he understood, Tim Duncan, what egotism and narcissism can do to a team. It can destroy it. It's actually a cancer. Anybody who's been around narcissists knows what they can do. And when Wake Forest coach Dave Odom completed his tribute, Spurs coach Greg Popovich was now ready, finally, to give his. And he talked about Tim Duncan's quirks, And in one case, how he eventually discovered that what he thought was a quirk was actually something incredibly profound. He's also strange. Uh, I don't know how many times I've had to bring carrot cake to his room. 
or he would be miffed. We're in a city and I'm in a restaurant and they have carrot cake. And so whenever that happens, I get the carrot cake, I bring it to his room like two or three in the afternoon, he might be sleeping. So I just set it at the door. I don't know what mice or whatever else has been eating on it, but I, I set it by the door, I'll knock and then I'll leave. And he got used to this, so it, I had to do this for 20 years. <laughs> Carrot cake for 20 years. David and Bruce never bothered me that way. Sean didn't bother me that way. But, you know, Timmy's special, so he had to have, he had to have carrot cake. You know. The first practice is his gym shorts are backwards. Reminds me of somebody now, wherever he might be. I don't know where the guys are. And we said, what, what's, what's the deal? He goes, this is what I do. This is, this is, this is, how, I, this is how I roll. I looked at the coaches, they looked at me, RC, we talked, he said, I don't think we care how he wears his trunks. <laughs> so he did it. The entire, entire time. Uh, <laughs> he's a, uh, an enigma in some ways. Uh, you think that Kawhi Leonard doesn't talk much. When Timmy first got here, it was like mental telepathy. I would, I would say something to him, and he would stare. The same stare that, same stare that Tony gets on the court. And I wasn't sure if he was paying attention, but, you know, he was a great collegian and played at a great program, so I'm figuring he understands what I'm saying. And finally, I realized that he understood everything I was saying, probably agreed with about half of it, but he's so respectful that he wouldn't say anything until later. He, would, he won't do it in front of the team, and sometimes I'd be merciless. And and for that, I'm really thankful because you allowed me to coach the team. Uh, if your superstar can take a little hit now and then, Everybody else can shut the hell up and fall in line. And that man did that for me. And there you have it. Now we know why the Spurs were the Spurs and Coach Popovich was the coach he was. Timmy Duncan let him be the coach. And here is how Popovich, Pop, to his friends and players, closed out this tribute to Timmy Duncan. And the last comment I'm going to make uh, before I promised I wouldn't use this tissue, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, this, is the, this, this is the most important comment that I can make about Tim Duncan that uh, I can honestly say to Mr. and Mrs. Duncan who have passed that that man right there is exactly the same person now as he was when he walked in the door. Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan then hugged, both fighting back tears, and then all that was left was for Duncan to say a few words, and in Tim Duncan fashion, 
They were short words, and between each thing he said, he held the microphone against his chin, head down, for 30 seconds, thinking about the very best words to say. Here's Tim. I've heard from uh, teammates, from the guys who have been with forever, to guys they played a year or two with, to these jokers over here. <laughs> just a, a, an amazing response, uh, and just an overwhelming amount of love from these guys for what I meant to them. And it doesn't even explain how much they meant to me because I got so much more from you guys, from my teammates, from these guys over here than, uh, than they can explain that they got from me. And I know that. He next thanked Coach Popovich. Thank you, Coach Pop, for being more than a coach. For being more like a father to me. Thank you. And here's how Tim Duncan closed up the retirement ceremony for his jersey, number 21. I'm going to tell you this. I won a lot of bets tonight. I didn't wear jeans. I wore a sport coat. I didn't wear a tie, so a bunch of people knew that. Uh, and I spoke for more than 30 seconds. <laughs> Thank you, San Antonio. Thank you. And there you have it, Timmy Duncan. By the way, my favorite team of all time watching the San Antonio Spurs, and I'm a Jersey boy who's loved basketball from the earliest day, and watching that team play the way they played, one of the joys of my life, the selflessness the way they rooted for each other, the way they covered for each other. A rare thing. And we know the heart of the team always was Tim Duncan. And of course, what a coach Popovich is. But even Pop admitted, without the star letting him take a notch at or take a shot at him, there was no chance of coaching the rest of the boys, the rest of the men. This is our American Stories. American Dreamers segment, Tim Duncan. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And as always, it's brought to us by the great people at Job Creators Network who do everything they can in their power to advance policies that help small businesses grow into bigger businesses. They're helping the nation's entrepreneurs of this country with regulations and with taxes and, of course, with credit. One of the big problems in this country is credit available to small businesses because of the demise of small banks in this country. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next edition on a guy named Carl Toma. You know, Nadan, you talk about working on on a ranch or a farm. You think that's a glamorous life and ought to be a fun job. When you're growing up as a kid and and a teenager, you kind of uh, despise and are angry. I guess maybe that's part of the reason I'm 
here today is I was bound and determined I was never going to go back in the farming or, or ranching business because every day when you get home from school and the school bus school and let out at 3.30 and you'd get take about an hour time they run the route to get home you get home at 4.45 and when you'd get off the school bus there'd be a I'll never forget it there'd be you know your dad and mom with the horse saddle and you'd have to get on it and go work cattle or do chores every evening you know till their dusk and then in the summer everybody else could hang out and do things I'd be stuck after the bill fence and so you'd almost have to sometimes pretend you were sick in order to hide in your car while they were working and be laying on the back seat listening to static AM sports. So the career this kid, Carl Toma, chose instead of cattle ranching was private equity? <laughs> Something I'm pretty sure he didn't dream about or know a thing about growing up on an isolated Oklahoma ranch. I grew up 25 miles from the nearest town and when our family first moved there we uh, didn't even have plumbing or electricity for the first year and then I never did have television growing up because back then there wasn't satellite and we didn't get a telephone until I was in the eighth grade because there was just no way to get the lines there. But one thing that through all of my ranching experience, and I give this credit to my mom, it's had an influence on me to this day. She was very much of a perfectionist, believing it and doing it right and having a lot of pride in the work you were, were doing. And, you know, in the fencing business, if you want to look down a fence, you should be one straight line as far as you can see because all the posts are lined up right. If the spacing of the wire is supposed to be eight inches, it's not seven or it's not nine, it's eight inches, and you measure it with the with the, a stick to get it accurately. And so in that sense, some of the great discipline was taught from the early age is, you know, just do it right. If it's done right in anything, it lasts longer. It gives you pride in, in what you're doing. And it usually doesn't take much longer to do something right than it does to do it sloppy. And so I was very fortunate in that sense. While I may complain about working at least they were teaching me good good practices and apply to any industry. And you know, in a fence well built can literally last out there because it doesn't rain much. And if you don't have a lot of weeds to blow against it can last 50 years. It's kind of hard to believe. <laughs> and Carl hopes that the fruit of his work in private equity lasts more than 50 years. Private equity is the business of investors, usually the retirement funds of folks like teachers and firefighters and university endowments, giving them money to grow it and grow it by investing on their behalf in other companies to help them grow. In the fruits of that growth, helping them, the company, and the whole world that uses their products. A pretty simple thing, a pretty cool thing, and also a pretty daunting thing to be responsible for someone else's money. But oddly, it was something that Carl was pretty prepared for. Why a lot of people like to be ranchers, and I almost contrast that versus farmers, is because you're your own boss. Your success is kind of predicated on your own judgment and and because ranching doesn't get any subsidies like you do for farmers where if you've got a 160 acre allotment of corn you can get paid basically not to farm whereas you nobody pays you not to 
to ranch. So I guess you grew up in an environment where you really never had a boss. So I, we just always grew up more in this sense of independence and out of that I guess I always just kind of liked it. investing and feeling like you've got control of, of your own, own destiny and it allows you to think of creative ways to do things. And so I don't know, I guess it's just kind of been our genes for our whole life, just like my granddad coming from Texas to northeastern New Mexico to, to Homestead. I mean, I don't, you know, that's to me some form of entrepreneurism. You go out there and you got enough money to buy one or two cows and 30, 40 years later, you know, the power of compounding kind of pays off. And I think that's uh, kind of the way all ranching is, is nobody in agriculture can get rich overnight, but if you're steady as you go, compounding just works. So, you know, if you got three head of cattle and you keep one back to breed it, you know, in the next year you got four and then it just keeps going. And, and that's kind of no different than the way investing is today. You know, you want to work with companies and help them grow. And one of the reasons private equity does better than most people like to give it credit is that we can't just sell tomorrow. So we got to keep building and growing these companies. And Lo and behold, you know, five years later, the company's doubled in size. Whereas a lot of people would buy it on Monday and sell it on Tuesday if, you know, the stock has gone up 10%. But in private equity, you got to think a little bit longer term. Carl and his firm, Toma Bravo, have been highly successful for their investors and also for the companies that they've invested in. One of them has had to move buildings three different times because they're continually hiring a ton more people. And Carl has been rewarded as such. You know, this is always a, a tough one when you decide what you're going to do with the money you've made. And, and what we've done is that I've got two kids. Each of them's getting 10% of our net worth, and the other 80% is either going to be given away outright or going into foundations. So Carl's not spending most of it on himself, as some do, or passing on most of it to his kids, as most do. He wants to make sure that the vast majority of the money that he made by helping others is going to help even more people mainly by bringing the beauty of art to those who might be missing it. I do feel the arts, if they're done in the right way, can bridge gaps, can inspire people, and, and bring to delight people's you know, lives. And maybe because I didn't grow up with much art around me, I probably am more in awe of that than if somebody had grew up in the city of Chicago and had taken art it for granted their whole life so but even in a great art city like chicago a lot of its citizens haven't been to its art institute which is truly one of the best art museums in the world and for many they can't go as often as they'd like i think some of the arts institutions are kind of pricing them out of the market that's one of our pet peeves here and i don't know it's tough and i guess that's the reason we try to support the arts it is getting where it's unfair with the city parking now in a family of four to go down to the Art Institute on a Sunday afternoon is gonna cost them a minimum of $100. And that's a lot of money. You know, you're out $25 for parking. You're out another 
$50 or more for tickets and you got to eat. So, you know, when people have to pay $100 to go to the Art Institute on Sunday afternoon, we're losing some of our, our audience. And it's just not, it doesn't seem quite fair, but the Art Institute would give you their side of the story. So I'm not meaning to pick on them. I'm, we're big, big supporters of them. So I guess we're not supporting them enough. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Carl Toma. And again, it's our American Dreamer series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's American Dreamer feature on Carl Toma, the guy who's donating 80% of his wealth that he's earned in private equity. And when we left off, Carl was speaking about just how expensive it is for families to go to an art museum or performance. And that's where Alex picks things up. Thankfully, there are some art institutions that have been attuned to this challenge, like the Chicago Shakespeare Theater which puts on 650 performances of Shakespeare and other plays and musicals in just the 365 days of a single year. That's been an organization that my wife's been involved with for 25 years since it was just struggling to start and the board would have to pass the hat to meet payroll and now they've got just finished that third stage over at Navy Pier, but they go out into all the communities and do all these summer programs. I think by now there's over 500,000 kids have gone over there for performances and and it's, you know, that kind of art, I think definitely just gives kids a sense that they can do things and you don't have to get A's in math to not feel like you can make a contribution and people need something to hold on to to have some self-confidence. That's as you know, part of the problem with our issues here in the Chicago, we, you know, all the murder rates would plummet if we could find ways to get these people jobs or get them involved in something where they, they got all this pent-up energy that's just being channeled in all the wrong directions. Jobs and creating arts give people a fulfillment that few other things can, and especially when you can combine them both. But there's challenges here that Carl is wrestling with, too. One of the things that you might see the not-for-profit industry is facing is that so many not-for-profit organizations or museums or theaters are relying on interns, but the interns aren't getting paid. But the fact they're not getting paid means that by default you're discriminating against those people who don't have the wherewithal or that economic background to go take these summer jobs. And so there's starting to be a movement afoot and our foundations are are thinking of doing this. This practice has just got to to stop because it helps level the playing field that if you get this job, you're going to get paid at least minimum wage. But I think it is time we face up to it as this deal of kind of exploiting 
internships because we're teaching you something you should be willing to work for free. If McDonald's says we're going to give out internships and you're not going to get paid to flip burgers, we know about how long that would last. In the not-for-profit world, it's created more barriers that we got to start to knock down. Maybe we don't need to empower quite as many, you know, upper middle class white people. Maybe we need to figure out how we empower more lower minority class people to get into the museum so they can start to appreciate it and use it as an inspiration. And a lot of not-for-profits kind of, they're not practicing what they preach. Only wealthy kids can afford not to get paid. But what's interesting is that in the financial industry, many interns are paid $40,000 a year for interning, whereas many nonprofits aren't paying for their labor at all. And this is also true of politicians. Many of them even call for raising the minimum wage, but then don't pay any wage to their interns. It's just like sports. How'd that whole spin out of control where a, a football ticket cost you hundreds of dollars to go to a game? And then we wonder why we've got this kind of the haves and the have-nots is that we've kind of lost sight of why people were granted NFL franchises. It was for the whole community and then now, now it seems to be something where only the billionaires get to play. And what I love about Carl is that you can just hear him genuinely wrestling with these big issues in his own mind and trying to do something about it. It's not what many expect from private equity folks that the media has painted as heartless and vain. Although some of those folks certainly do exist. I don't know why people do this. There is too many fancy parties thrown by certain wealthy individuals that I, it just unfortunately, I, I don't know, it's, uh, you don't hear Warren Buffett, you know, renting out some stadium in Las Vegas and spending $5 million for the Rolling Stones to come in and perform. And I think sometimes a few people, and I mean it's very few, it's probably less than 1%, just do some really extravagant things then it gets used against, against the whole industry. Just as the media and politicians use stories of bad cops to make the vast majority of good ones look bad, and the bad Catholic priests to make the vast majority of good ones look bad. These are all human institutions where there are going to be bad apples. I'm sorry, there are. But the vast majority of Americans are good people. You know, and anybody in the ranching business, it's kind of a, a code of honor. Nobody ever tells anybody, you know, how big their ranch is. That's really not relevant. <laughs> and so I think you just grow up with that mindset is that life is not about bragging. You know, and I sometimes think that I guess we have to blame Forbes. When Forbes decided to go around and start ranking everybody's wealth, what in the hell difference does that make? <laughs> you know, and maybe corporations, because they're public, you have to do it. But individuals, why, why do they need the Forbes 500? What, what's the relevance of that? <laughs> you know, I think it just creates a false sense of capitalism. It, you know, because it's, 
you know, people accumulate that wealth generally because they're creating something of value that's sustainable. Instead, everybody just hones in on how much somebody is worth. Well, in a more appropriate discussion of what money people have, today we often hear about how public pension funds, the government retirement funds that private equity firms help invest on behalf of, have huge deficits where they can't fulfill the retirement benefits that they promised their workers. One of the few states that actually has done this right is the state of Minnesota. Their funding was so well-funded, and their performance of investing groups like ours and others, they were able to increase somebody's pension because of their performance. You know, when you live here in Illinois, everybody's in fear, well, I even get my pension. In, in Minnesota, you actually, with a little luck, you know, you're going to get a bigger payout, so you can kind of be assured people in probably Minnesota aren't complaining about private equity as much as they might be in Illinois, because in Illinois, we can put up boxcar numbers and we still won't have enough money to pay the pensions. <laughs> but to go to somewhere all the pensions are fully funded, then all of a sudden this money we're making them, we're not, it doesn't seem so bad. If all of a sudden I'm getting another 50 bucks a month on my pension, you know. <laughs> but down here, we give them that extra $50, and that just means their deficit's slightly less. And so. But at the end of the day, it's, it's setting expectations, right? And they've set expectations wrong in states like Illinois and have overpromised. And They really did. Even on a basic level, I think we all get this with marriage, right? When we communicate with our wives what time we're going to be home or they communicate with us, life's managing expectations and not overpromising. Obviously, you want to deliver, but talk through this more, Carl. In America, we do things and figure out how we're going to pay for it later. You know, I don't know whether that's going out on Black Friday and buying a fifth television set for your house you don't need and then how are you going to pay for it you put it on your visa card you know maybe if you don't have the cash in the bank you don't need a fifth tv and i think that just happened a little bit with promises were made with nobody having to pay for it and then eventually you have to pay for it and what's tragic is how this problem has harmed my home state and carl's adopted state that its people really love besides these government-created problems. Their pension debts and spending debts more broadly have forced upon its citizens the highest tax burden in the whole country, with a median household paying $8,162 in state and local taxes, effectively almost a 15% income tax. And that's on top of the ways the federal government taxes us. And for many Illinoisans, they're paying the government more every month in property taxes for just the privilege of the government allowing them to have a home than the amount of their mortgage, the cost of the actual home itself. It's tough when you've got... States like Tennessee, which is not a bad place to live, or Texas, where people can move there and not pay any state income taxes or pay these high property taxes. And, you know, and it's no fun waking up every day about everybody just, you know, it just kind of depresses you reading about this problem. And it's, I don't know, at some point it's just out of sight, out of mind, so I'll just move. <laughs> And from 2006 to 2015, 700,000 people net did just that in Illinois. 
And Illinois led the nation in population loss and more want to go. Great job as always on this, Alex, on our American Dreamers series, Carl Thomas Story, here on our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and a popular men's magazine recently posed one of the most intriguing pop culture questions of all time. Who was cooler, Steve McQueen or James Dean? The magazine's nod went to McQueen. Guess that's why he's been crowned the king of cool. Steve McQueen was basically Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and Johnny Depp all rolled into one. In fact, Dear John's Channing Tatum and The Notebook's Ryan Gosling are currently battling it out to play the undeniably authentic McQueen in Hollywood's yet-to-be-shot biopic. But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries never tell you is what happened when there was no script to read and the cameras stopped rolling. This is Steve McQueen's story. Steve McQueen was the coolest of cool. With searing performances in blockbusters like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and Bullet, to his love for fast cars, beautiful women, and life on the edge, he was one of the hottest cultural icons of the 20th century. Steve McQueen was born on March 24, 1930, just five months after the Great Wall Street Crash. Within months, his father abandoned both he and his 19-year-old alcoholic mother, Julian. His mother left Steve at her uncle Claude's farm. Julian remarried an angry and abusive alcoholic, returned for her then 12-year-old son, and moved to Los Angeles. The new stepfather began beating both of them. Steve would spend the rest of his life avoiding his mother and searching for his father. Here's Steve's friend, Hilly Elkins. It was that that underpinning that made what he did so effective because there was a gentle and real core of sensitivity to the man. Uh, there was a little boy always in whatever he did. By the time Steve was 14, he'd become a tough street punk in Los Angeles and was arrested. When a traveling carnival passed through the town, Steve joined for a time, then returned to the streets where he was arrested again. On February 6, 1945, Steve was ordered to the Boys' Republic in Chino, California, a reform school for juvenile boys with behavioral and emotional problems. During his 18-month stint at the Boys' Republic he adjusted to, and even thrived on, the structure and discipline. But Steve struggled with dyslexia. After the ninth grade, he dropped out of school. He emerged from the Boys' Republic with a steel-eyed coolness and detachment, inner rage and a rugged street cred. It was a character forged in his pain, 
but it would become an archetype that would define the modern movie star, many of whom he would never meet. Here's actor Mel Gibson from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. I had so many people I admired in films, and Steve was one of these guys. So I actually studied, you know, how he would move. Interesting. And, and the kinds of things he would do. And I think that he tended to be a kind of a guy who was out there and, and disinhibited in some ways, almost to the point of criminality. There was something about him that was sort of delinquent. At 16 years of age, he became a deckhand on a boat when AWOL worked in a brothel in the Dominican Republic and was arrested for vagrancy and served 30 days on a southern chain gang. At 17, he joined the Marines and served as a tank driver and the mechanic. He saved five fellow Marines from a tank before it sank into the Arctic waters. On the other hand, he destroyed the engine of a tank trying to, quote, make it the fastest tank in the division. The Marines made a man out of me, McQueen later admitted. I learned how to get along with others, and I had a platform to jump off of. Here's McQueen biographer Marshall Terrell. So when Steve McQueen was discharged from the military, he was either going to go to Spain and and learn how to tile set from the great masters, or he was going to become an actor. And the only reason why at the time he decided that he was going to become an actor was because acting had a lot of women. In 1950, at the age of 20, Steve headed to New York City and rented a flat in Greenwich Village. Here again is Marshall Terrell. Steve McQueen's first acting gig was uh, in the Yiddish theater. It turned out he was not a very powerful theater actor, and so he got fired, I think, after the first week. He was perfect for film because film would capture your subtleties. And then if, somehow or another, he got into Lee Strasberg's uh, actor studio. So that, that shows you the raw talent that Steve McQueen had. Here's Steve McQueen. I know that when I was studying in New York, uh, I knew that I couldn't afford to fail because uh, it was the only thing that I knew how to do and and that uh, I didn't know any other trade. Despite some modest success, McQueen was getting nowhere fast until he met a rising Broadway star everyone was talking about. Here's Steve's first wife, Neil Adams McQueen. I was a Broadway baby. My life was all about dancing. I had just come out of Carnegie Hall. I had been rehearsing for a show called Pajama Game. There he was with a dog, a big dog. He had a German Shepherd with him. And he said, hi, you're pretty. And I said, I didn't know what to say. I just saw those blue eyes, you know. And uh, I said, well, uh, you're pretty too. I don't know. I I suppose it opposites attract, but I guess it was ever a thing of... uh fall in love with a girl at first sight, I guess that was it because, well, I sure had a chaser for a long time. He picked me up on his motorcycle one night and that was it. Four months later, we were married. Neil would always say, well, this is what I see in you. If you give a little of that in your performance, then you will be recognized. And that's where you really see the first of the McQueen persona starting to emerge. McQueen had raw talent. But Neil's unstinting belief in her husband was one of the chief reasons he was finally able to open up and trust someone. So he took it to heart when she told her husband what she thought of his television appearances. I gotta let him do the stand on my two feet, Mr. Preston. They're shaving the hair off of my head and I know it. My mother don't know it. Do you hear me? Here's Neil. 
instinctively I knew that what was showing through was not the man that I knew. I said, what I keep seeing is Brand or Dean, and it's just, you know, it doesn't work. And he realized that what I was talking about was right. So I said, smile a little bit. I know it's, it's a tough thing to do because you're playing a killer, but when you're talking to your mother or something, you've got to be able to show something of you. So he did, and for the first time, then he got fan mail, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's good. And he knew I was on his team. So true, and he was not Brando, and he was not James Dean, the king of cool Steve McQueen, his life story. After these messages. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people. It's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. And of course, it's Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, why do some people have inescapable foot odor and thus the music? And Heidi, by the way, has just recently moved to Chicago. And of course, because of her move, move, the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor. Welcome, Heidi. That's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. (laughs) Hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet. And one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor? Uh, that there are. Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like, it. I don't know, like you, you've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it. And it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this and and, you know, we, we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when, we t- when I brought it up to, to my wonderful editors, they thought that was a great idea. And they wanted to know. Inquiring minds wanted to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history that I had growing up. And by the way, we yep. did everything. And he's, that, that odor sounded... No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross-country runner. And, and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot. And, and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house. And it infected yeah. the clothes. Like, my clothes smelled. My, my, my eyes smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh, so, so, I know. So, so does your husband, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human. And I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. <laughs> anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but it, it, they, podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so 
you know, we're, we're, I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also, because you, you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. So there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much, you know, your odor, your body is producing that this doctor that I spoke to, um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she, she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. So and, and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than 250,000 sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you don't want to know how many <laughs> um, bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, it's, I, gross. I, in, ugh, it's gross. Uh, it's gross. And and so <laughs> so so what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the so the first thing, so she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help. Dim, you know, diminish it. Like it's, he'll outgrow it, hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to um, to get synthetic material that is sweat. What is it? Wicking. So as long as so he, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this. Um, it's called it's called um, smart wool. So it's actually it's it's I think a mix a blend of merino. Anyway, this this product it, it helps your your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body so what happens is um your foot is trapped in this shoe it gets sweaty right and your foot foot's producing this this bacteria the bacteria is breaking down and it's causing this um this stinky odor and if you keep if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that oh, so I know, it's pretty gross <laughs> so even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's going to, it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame this, this stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus. You can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot, something like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't they, don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully, like for 24 hours, and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24-hour period. And, and that- then you want to use these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So, the, so between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing. And by the way, this <laughs> periodically worked when we did it. Is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the. I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, and for him, I think he's, he's embarrassed. Um, and I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like Febreze can work when I said this is going to mask the odor. Um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water. And she puts on the rubber. I can't believe a foot closet smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water. She recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. 
Hopefully. That would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze. And, and also, what's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so- home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like thirty minutes, and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something, and you stick your feet in there. Um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled, and that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria, and it will it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, so I can tell you that. I just threw them out well, when I'm, they're really I'm hope I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, he actually did go out of it, but, I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just creep, it would just creep out, and it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And, by the way, that leads me to one last thing because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last a few weeks ago. I get into a cab. And, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about, like, body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But oh my goodness, right. really bad body odor? It's just brutal lighting. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you just you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's it's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor. And as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So this is good <laughs> news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And... This could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home (laughs) and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The Burning Question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do.
is Our American Stories. You're listening to Cheryl Crow's Steve McQueen. And we return to Greg's story about the King of Cool. When it came to his children, the King of Cool had nothing but a warm heart. Here's daughter Terry, Neil, and son Chad. It was very important to him that my brother and I had a real sense of home. You know, we were able to go to him and talk to him, not just as a father, but as a friend. When the children were little, when they were first born, he really couldn't relate to them. You know, he just uh, sort of dismissed them until they were able to uh, become little persons. As soon as, as their personality started evolving, then Steve could relate to the little children. He instilled a lot of things in me and my sister that uh, he had learned. I think he, he used to say, uh, some to the effect that, that I mean, I, I've learned, so now it'll save you the bumps and the bruises. It was very important that we were not raised in the Hollywood, not to put down Beverly Hills, but the Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, you know, of children that had no values. We, um, we were raised with the values that I would hope I can manage to instill in my children. With success and money, Steve McQueen collected cars and motorcycles, and they all found a home in his garage. Car and motorcycle enthusiasts formed McQueen's inner circle of friends, admiring and respecting him not as a Hollywood figure, but as a man after their own macho hearts. Here's Chad. He dug hanging out with guys like that, you know? I mean, he's really, he was in his element. I think for him, doing movies was a battle. You know, it was a, he knew that he had to get his game face on. Motorcycles, he just blended in with the rest of the guys. One of the guys Steve McQueen dug hanging out with was Roger McGrath. And I dug hanging out with Roger too, although I know him as Dr. McGrath. You see, Roger is my former college professor in Southern California, who also happens to be one of the coolest guys I've ever met. So I gave him a call and asked the Pacific Palisades boy to tell me about the first time he met McQueen. He began by telling me about having just seen The Great Escape in the theater right before they met. And here is Steve McQueen, and of course, he was my favorite by far in there, and I think most American guys, because he was the quintessential American, you know, rebellious and defiant, and supremely uh, tough and talented, you know, with that just, you know, cocky... uh, attitude and and that certain hard edge to him you know and it's something i think we all you know deep down in our hearts thought was that was an american you know that was the way we should be and he certainly captured that in the great escape all right uh, there i was up there on somebody's private road it was 1964 i was 17 and a, a senior at palisades and uh and I was uh, doing wheel stands, making a lot of noise on my matchless over these speed bumps. And all of a sudden I hear this whoop, whoop. And I thought, oh, gee, that's nothing could sound like that except a V12 Ferrari, you know. And so I thought, ah, oh, God, some uh, resident here. Uh, you know, this is all in a split second. I thought, well, I, I guess he has a right to be a a little upset maybe and uh, but then on the other hand I was 
I was 17 and of course full of it. <laughs> so I thought, ah. and then another, and all of a sudden, right next to me is a Ferrari 250 GT Berlinetta. And I look over expecting to uh, see the driver looking over and giving me the one finger salute, you know. And then I thought, and then we'd, we'd pull over and, uh, you know, see what happens. And, and instead, I look over there and it's Steve McQueen. You know, here's Mr. Great Escape. <laughs> and uh, he's looking over and instead of the one finger salute, he's motioning. He's motioning like, follow me, follow me. And so I did. And uh, I followed him into the garage, into the garage, and he jumped out. He was he was dressed uh, you know, kind of casual, but but smooth. Maybe he'd been at a meeting in Hollywood. And he said, "Give me five minutes." And he uh, split into the house. And I sat there in the garage, looking at a couple triumphs of his. True to his word, five minutes later, he comes out, and he's wearing Levi's, a T-shirt, and a sawed-off sweatshirt. And he grabs a pair of goggles off a peg on the wall, and he said, let's ride, let's ride. <laughs> so off we went, you know. Then in 1970, despite a broken foot from a motorcycle racing accident, McQueen would race the grueling 12 hours in Sebring, Florida. McQueen was neck and neck with Mario Andretti in the Ferrari 512S. With an average speed of 113 miles an hour, McQueen would challenge for the lead with his Porsche 908 Spider throughout the 12-hour marathon. In the end, Andretti won, crossing the finish line a mere 23 seconds ahead of the second-place McQueen. And it must be noted that Andretti had a three-driver team while McQueen only had a two-man team. Then McQueen threw everything into his 1971 auto racing movie Le Mans. With more than 70,000 hours of racing footage, nobody knew what the film's storyline was, and it was a critical and box office failure. His production company collapsed. He lost his agent. His 15-year marriage to Neil ended. The IRS presented him with a $2 million tax bill, and the finger of blame for all of it was pointing directly at Steve McQueen. It was a long fall from the top, and McQueen hit every step on the way down. And the final crash and burn occurred one night with a guy named Charles Manson and his so-called family. Steve McQueen was, was invited to uh, the house of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And the only reason he didn't was because on his way there, he saw a young girl hitchhiking, picked her up, and off they went. But then when he found out the next morning what happened, completely uh, became unglued. We have a weird homicide. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. One officer summed up the murders when he said, in all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. His paranoia had gone through the roof. The ghastly murders convinced McQueen that the deranged hippies and so-called flower children were out to get him. It turned out that McQueen had cause to be spooked. During the Manson family trial, it was revealed that McQueen was on their kill list, along with 
Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Tom Jones. Now we all know that Jesus walked on water, but did you know that Chuck Norris can swim on land? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right. Steve McQueen was so macho that after Chuck saw him in the classic motorcycle documentary On Any Sunday, he had a wish. Here's Chuck Norris. I saw a movie called On Any Sunday. I said, if there's any one actor I'd like to meet, that's the man I'd like to meet. And I'm in my karate school in Sherman Oaks, and I get a call, and my one of my instructors comes to me and says, uh, there's a call from Steve McQueen. I guess you're kidding. And so Steve became one of my private students and trained with me for uh, several years. I did my first film, and after I finished the film, I went and saw it, and I thought, it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And Steve uh, came and saw it, and he said, well, it's not that bad of a film, but let me give you some advice. And when we come back, the last installment of the life of Steve McQueen, here on Our American Stories. Listening to the soundtrack from the Magnificent Seven. And when we last left off, Steve McQueen had just seen one of Chuck Norris's first movies and was about to give him some advice. Here's Chuck. He said, You are verbalizing things on the screen that we have already seen visually. And movies are visual, it's a visual thing. This is another thing. Let your character actors fill in the plot of the movie. And when there's something pertinent, very important to say, then you say it. He said, then the people will remember what you say. He said, that's what you've got to have in your movies. Memorable lines. The great comeback started with the 1972 film, The Getaway, which was the first of three big powerhouse films and performances for McQueen in the 70s. He followed that up with Papillon in 1973, and it was on the set of Papillon where legendary stuntman Stan Barrett, the former Golden Gloves champ, motocross racer, and black-belted Air Force veteran, had an unusual talk with his friend Steve McQueen. Here's Stan Barrett from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. He said, have you seen JN around? And Jay and Roberts was the best desert racer at the time. And he said, well, what do you think? He said, he's really pretty far out there, this religion thing with him. I said, look, Steve, he's off the drugs. He's not doing this and that. I said, he's pretty excited about it. And Steve said, well, you know, I'm, re- I'm religious too. I've gone to church. And I said, Steve, because you go in and out of a barn don't mean you're a cow. Normally that would have zapped somebody else uh, and might have been a put down, but, but Steve wanted to listen a little bit more. Stan basically asked, you know, do you have a relationship with God? That's, that's the key. I told Steve, I think, my story, 
and uh, you know how I came to Christ and how to change my life. And he was not offended. He was inquisitive and listened to what I had to say. So, so Stan left McQueen two books, including Mere Christianity. You know, I said, Steve, this ain't no rehearsal, man. You know, you're not getting out of here alive. And I said, you know, you'd better think about it. In 1977, McQueen not only left his second wife, Allie McGraw, but he also left Hollywood, something no Hollywood star had done before. When the offers kept coming, McQueen ripped the mailbox from its post and tossed it into the ocean and told his agent to charge $50,000 just to read a script. Here again is Steve's son, Chad. I think when you get to some sort of stardom like that, you would you say, well, is this all there is to it? I mean, I thought there was more out of life, and I think he was searching for that. At 47, McQueen decided to start a whole new life. At 23, Barbara Minty was the perfect partner. It was almost inevitable, but Steve got interested in airplanes. After moving 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles to Santa Paula, Steve was looking for a flying instructor at the local airport. So he was given the name of Sammy Mason, who um, was a stunt pilot uh, and a test pilot for Lockheed and a very, very, very well-respected man. Here's McQueen's widow, Barbara Minty. I've never seen him really respect somebody so much. I mean, Sammy was everything in his eyes. Steve saw in my dad something, you know, that I just took for granted. You had to respect him. He didn't demand it, but you just wanted to give it to him. Mm -hmm. He recognized in him a, a spirit of confidence, a spirit of peace. And it's hard to describe, but when you're around him, you, you, know, you just really felt comfortable. He had been looking for father figures all of his life, and, and he definitely found one in Sammy. He was his mentor, um, his hero, his, yeah. his everything. They just became solid, solid friends, and um, they had a family life that I'm pretty sure that Steve had never experienced. And they, they just accepted him, took him into their hearts, took him into their home. And um, Sammy was so solid spiritually. Yeah. He wasn't a preacher. Yeah. He lived it. And finally, one day, he basically said, what is it about you that's different? I can't quite put my finger on it. And Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a born-again Christian. He came home one day and he says, honey, put a dress on. We're going to church. And I'm like, oh, okay. It came completely, completely out of the blue. It wasn't Sammy asking Steve to come to church. It was Steve asking Sammy if he could come to church with him. My dad told me, he says, you know, Steve asked if he could go to church with me. So I, I thought, well, that's, that'll be a one-time thing. You know, Steve and his wife, Barbara, uh, went to church with Sammy and his wife, Wanda, uh, faithfully every week up in the balcony of the, of the uh, Ventura Missionary Church. Here's then pastor of Ventura Missionary Church, Leonard DeWitt. After church, I was standing out in the foyer greeting people and uh, felt somebody tap me on the shoulder. And I turned around and uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I'm Steve McQueen. And I said, hi, Steve. He, he just had a bunch of things he wanted to know uh, about the Christian life. And what about the Bible? And yeah. can you really rely on it? And yeah. so forth. His questions were really good. And so after two hours, he sat back and he said, well, that's all of my questions. 
And I said, Steve, I have won. And he, he grinned, he said, you want to know if I'm born again, don't you? And I said, that's really what's important to me. Hmm. And so then he said, you remember the Sunday that you invited people who wanted to receive Christ? When you gave that invitation, he said, that's when I accepted Christ. It sort of all clicked that if I could be forgiven, I can start all over again and, and I can have that inner peace that I've wanted for so many decades. Going to church and, and Sammy, I think, helped him a lot. I mean, his whole life just changed. The King of Cool was now doing one of the most rebellious things he had ever done in his life. But about six months after becoming a Christian, several friends began noticing McQueen's unhealthy appearance. Here's what Roger McGrath saw while spending time with Steve at the Santa Paula airport. Oh, and then one day I came home and I, remember I, I told my wife that Steve had kind of let himself go. I think I used the term, oh, he's looking kind of rasty, you know. Um, and then I was out there a couple weeks later hanging out with him. His abdomen was kind of protruding a bit. And Steve was always a very lean guy without an ounce of extra anything on him. Probably a little bit under 5'10", uh, and uh, probably didn't weigh more than 150. And so it looked like something was kind of pushing out against his t-shirt. And he kind of uh, looked and it couldn't help me noticing. And he, he said, I ah, said, I've been trying to keep it quiet. It's, uh, it's the big C, you know, it's cancer. Here's Allie and Barbara. 50 years old, it was way too early for this story to happen. And yet he'd been exposed to asbestos, which is, I gather, what was the specific root of that cancer. He was in the Marines, and he was cleaning up the... Um, of course, he went and chased some girl, and he got in trouble. And they made him clean out the hulls of these ships, and they had asbestos. That's where he breathed in the asbestos, and asbestos takes... Mesothelioma takes probably usually 20-some years to get into your body and get going. Here's Steve's close friend and racing buddy, Bud Eakins. He got very, very close with people, like he was trying to make amends for uh, his past life and, and trying to make up for everything uh, to clear his way, you know, to God. Steve also made a phone call to his wife, Neil, for the many indiscretions he committed during their marriage. On November 3, 1980, as McQueen's visit with the Reverend Billy Graham was wrapping up, Steve turned to his new friend and called out, I'll see you in heaven. Four days later, Steve McQueen was dead. Right then, right here, the King of Cool made the ultimate great escape to his forever home with his forever father, the King of Kings. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's a heck of a story. And I think I know a lot about acting and actors, but my goodness, Greg, great job on that. And, you know, you heard that great line from The Son, and The Son had said that, you know, the guy, the guy who he loved, his father, had experienced this stardom but that there had to be more in life. There had to be something more than scripts and fame. And by the way, we, we hit that so many times. And unlike so many other stars who end up killing themselves, 
McQueen did something different. He went and searched for some kind of deeper meaning in his life, and he sought out other sources of meaning and other friendships. And you won't hear this kind of story anywhere else, but here on Our American Stories, we pull no punches. We take the stories where they go, and this one ended beautifully. Steve McQueen's life story here on Our American Stories, and you can hear all that we do. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And we go out, as we started this segment, with the sound from the Magnificent Seven. And watch Steve McQueen's acting, particularly in the Thomas Crown Affair. It may be as good a piece of acting as you've ever seen, and the same with Sand Pebbles. Steve McQueen's story here on Our American Story. (laughs) 